Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. How you doing, Upper Room Fellowship? Good. You guys are looking good today. Really good. Um, my name is Chris. Good to be here. I love, I really love Sundays. I love being here. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you all are here. So we, um, we aren't going to start a new sermon series until Advent. So I figured that I would talk about something today that um, it's, it's relevant, very relevant, uh, but maybe isn't the easiest topic to kind of work through because it completely goes against the grain of our culture. We are going to talk about the authority of Jesus in our lives. Something that Rich mentioned when he had his word earlier. Awesome. We're going to be in the book of Mark, Mark 12, if you want to go there. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can go there. Or Jared will be putting the words up on the screen for us. Jared's been running the projection and lights for us for a few weeks now. Doing just a great job back there. Thank you, Jared. Doing great. So the story we're in today, it continues a progression of challenges to Jesus' authority. So actually, the whole book of Mark is kind of one big essay on the authority of Christ. Every story in Mark ramps up to people being amazed by something Jesus said or did. It just keeps showing how Jesus has authority over people, over demonic powers, over the elements, over the wind and waves, over the religious system of Israel. You see over and over in Mark that Jesus is the final say over all these things. So in this part of Mark, Jesus is again being challenged. So let's read Mark 12, 13 through 17. And then talk about what Jesus is and really isn't saying in the story. So let's read Mark 12, 13. Start there. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you excuse me, pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Love it. Get him, Jesus. So, so for Jesus... Palm Sunday had just happened the day before. Okay, they had entered, he had entered the city on a donkey. He uh, entered triumphantly into the city. He walked into the temple. He overturned the tables. He kind of messes with everybody's system that they had going on there. Now it's a new day, the next day, and Jesus is back in the temple. The Pharisees have tried to trap Jesus and get Jesus a few times, but they just always fail. But now they have a new plan. Right? Now they're ready with their guns loaded. So everybody's watching. It's probably like a packed house since it's Passover. It's like the biggest travel day to the, to the temple of the year. Everybody's kind of packed in watching this interaction. So let's kind of walk through it. Let's, let's look at verse 13. It says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. So the Pharisees and Herodians, they were opposites on the political spectrum. Okay, these two groups didn't really talk to each other very often. The, the Pharisees were, they were devout to the, oh, excuse me, I'm going crazy. 
They were devout to the Jewish law and the Torah and the Herodians. Uh, they were in bed with Caesar. So the Herodians were colluding with the empire that was oppress, oppressing the Israelite system. So basically, it'd be like uh, a group of ultra-conservatives and a group of ultra-liberals got together and had pizza or something. They usually don't hang out, but they're hanging out here because they are unified by a common enemy. Both systems are massively threatened by this 33-year-old Jewish troublemaker from Nazareth. So it's important to understand the background to understand really what the question is that's being asked. So in our day, taxes are unpleasant. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah? Yeah. But for Jewish people in the first century, taxes were more than just a blow to the wallet. Okay, the, the tax referred to here, this imperial tax that they're asking Jesus about, uh, it was a tax that was instituted by Caesar, the oppressor. So in addition to local taxes, temple taxes, and Herod's taxes, in addition to those taxes, they would pay an imperial tax, which was one day's wage to Caesar. So all the known world would pay this tribute coin that symbolizes one day's wage in their culture. So we have a slide with a picture of it, I, th- I believe. Is it on the next one? Do we have it? There it is. There he is, looking good. I think it looks cool. So to the Jews, the problem wasn't just the, the price of the coin. It's what the coin represented. So you see, they were in the land, the land God promised them. But Rome was in charge. Rome had power over them. So for hundreds of years, since the Babylonian invasion, Israel had been ruled by others. But what was maybe worse than that was, about this text, is that the, the Torah specifically forbid graven images, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. So to make a human image out of anything for their culture was considered idolatrous. Yet staring back at them from their tax coin was a graven image of their oppressor, the one man that was behind all of their suffering. And so they had this coin, and it, rep- rep- it was resented by the Pharisees. Um, there was a group of zealots, a group called Ze- the Zealots, who wouldn't even touch it. They wouldn't pay the tax with it. Whatever taxes they paid, they paid in Israelite coins, shekels or whatever it was. Oh, and even worse, around Caesar's head, it says, Caesar, son of the divine. That's what it says there. So for followers of God, you can see how this is a problem. Caesar is claiming divinity. And the other side, you, you can read it there, says, Pontiff Maxim. That means, get this, high priest. So you can see the tension here. This was right at the heart of who they were as God's people. The tax they're asking about, are it's not a tax in general, but it's a particular tax. It was a tax for the privilege of being a subject to Caesar. It was a very small tax, but it was symbolic. When you paid this tax, you were saying, I submit to Caesar, I am a subject of Caesar's kingdom. If you didn't pay the tax, it was a symbol that you did not agree with the kingdom of Caesar. Here's the trap. On one hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, Jesus says that, he's calling for a revolt. That had been tried before, and it did not go well. If he says, yes, do pay the tax, then everybody who has been hearing him talk about this kingdom, the kingdom of God, will believe he's a fake. They're trying to smoke Jesus out. They're trying to get him to come down on one side or the other. They're trying to say, what are your politics, Jesus? What's your political persuasion? 
What party are you a member of? This is the dramatic and super tense backdrop for this story. So let's continue with that in mind. Verse 14, they came to him and they said, We know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So they approached Jesus with a bunch of compliments. Good way to start out. This is the bait to lure him into the trap. So what will Jesus say? How, how will he get out of this one? Verse 15, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. The coin raised for all to see, Jesus calls their attention to this image. This graven image, blasphemous and offensive. And he basically says, since the coin's idolatrous, throw it back where it came from. Give it back. Don't freak out. Give, give it back to Caesar. He can have it for all I care. Why would you want this idolatrous piece of metal anyway? My kingdom doesn't work this way. It doesn't hinge on this stuff. Money, partisan politics. Caesar can have this imperial tax for all I care. And this ingenious response from Jesus doesn't end there. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The coin bears Caesar's image, so Caesar can have it. But who bears God's image? Who bears God's image? We do. In fact, the, f- the first thing spoken of human beings in all Scripture is Genesis 1.26. Let us make mankind in our image. Caesar gets his blasphemous coin back. What does God get? He gets us. He gets all of us. Now, it'd be kind of pretty safe and easy to land the plane here. You know, give God your heart today or whatever. Let's pray. That'd be safe and probably helpful. Um, But I'm worried that the implications of Jesus' words here are a little bit more farther reaching than that. I think that Jesus is actually wanting to reorient our loyalties here, everybody in the room. So a couple of things to point out. And this might come kind of out of left field at first, but follow, follow along. Like I said, there was an armed revolt attempted 25 years or so before this time when the tax was instituted. It was led by a man named Judas the Galilean. When Judas the Galilean led the revolt, here's what he did. He did three things. First, he called on all Jews to refuse to pay the imperial tax. Secondly, with an armed group of followers, he went and he cleansed the temple. He got rid of all the foreigners, threw out all the Gentiles and Romans. Thirdly, he said, now we're going to let God be our king, not Caesar. We're going to bring in the kingdom of God. We're going to get rid of all injustice. We're going to get rid of all oppression. We're going to bring in the kingdom of God. He was attacked, caught, and executed. Now, it's 25 years later, you see what's happening? First of all, Jesus Christ has built his entire teaching around the kingdom of God. He's been talking about the kingdom of God for years. Secondly, he just cleansed the temple. He just has thrown out the money changers and the animal sellers. So now they come and you see what they're asking. There's one thing missing, one part missing, the violent political revolt. So what you see here is Jesus going Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. 
It means Jesus rejects violent response as a means to power. This was a big deal. Jesus knew that violent revolution changes the rulers, but not the rules. So he's demonstrating a better way, the way of living peaceably and honorably toward authority, even authority as oppressive as Caesar. Jesus says to make peace and even to live in a way that blesses the oppressor. Jesus offers a whole new way of confronting evil with bold love, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, forgiving enemies and praying for them and giving one's life for others. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus also rejects the collaborative way of the Herodians. The Herodians, remember, they're in bed with the empire. They were collaborating with the oppressor. They were given over to Rome. And for them, Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. Detach from all unholy alliances and place yourself completely under the rule of God. And then there's a third party Jesus challenges. He challenges the Pharisees. He calls the Pharisees to be true to the Torah, be true to their own scriptures. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about spreading your hands out in prayer, but your hands are full of blood. It talks about seeking justice, defending the oppressed, siding with the orphan, and speaking for the widow. And it says, these are God's things. So when Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, he's saying, don't be hypocrite. Do the things that you teach people to do. So what's this mean for us? Well, let's talk about what this doesn't mean, okay? What has happened with this text is it has been used to enforce a sacred-secular divide. It's a mindset that our lives happen in separate parts. The spiritual part over here, the work part over here, the political part over here, and so on, right? So your spiritual part, it kind of requires a certain way of thinking and behaving, and then we live that out, and then we have our our work part that requires a certain way of thinking and behaving, and our social part and our, our political part, and on and on and on. So historically, our Western mindset has done an especially good job of separating the political and the spiritual into two distinctly different parts. And one of the many problems with this line of thinking is that it creates for us what's called the myth of dual citizenship. It's the idea that we have a citizenship in heaven and another, in our case, in America. So while this is true in a sense, we are citizens of both, the massive problem uh, arises when our competing allegiances do not allow Christ to inform all of our life. And that's what Jesus means when he says, give to God what's God's. Jesus says, pledge allegiance to me. Let me inform all of your life. Not even all the parts of your life, but all of your life. Jesus here is messing with everybody's allegiances. If we're going to allow Jesus to inform all of life, we're going to have to check all of our allegiances at his feet. Whether it's work, political, financial, social interactions, entertainment, recreational, whatever. You squash them all together in one big whole, messy, beautiful sphere called life. Then you take it and you look at it, you look at Jesus and you look at the Gospels and you ask the question, does it look like Jesus? Do my ethics look like Jesus? Do my my politics sound like Jesus? 
do my finances align with how Jesus talks about money? Because he has a ton to say about it. Do my social interactions go down the way Jesus's do? See, the story, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's, it shows us that Jesus has not some, he's not some distanced, irrelevant, detached guru with his head in the clouds. No, he's saying, he's saying my kingdom, my way should inform the whole of your life. That we pledge allegiance fully to him. As the subjects, we are called to submit to certain people and certain institutions. Yes. Let me not be heard saying otherwise. We are citizens of, to the governing authorities. But it isn't because they have ultimate authority over us. It isn't even because they're right or good. As kingdom people, Jesus is our authority. And we submit to the people and the institutions that he has placed in our lives because he tells us to do so. It's under his authority that we submit. So here's the point. We owe Caesar something, but not everything. And we who bear God's image and are inscribed with Jesus' name owe God everything. That's really important. Jesus is our ultimate authority, and he gets our ultimate allegiance. And that means, that means that our one true authority may require us at a times for us to disobey or defy the people and institutions we are under. The way of Jesus must win out every time. Even if it means losing a raise or losing a job, losing a friend, losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Even if it means being ostracized or ridiculed or persecuted by your community. Even if it means legal action, imprisonment, historically, even death. The fact is, following the way of Jesus can strip away our comfort and get us into a lot of trouble. He never pretended that it wouldn't. In fact, the entire New Testament, it reads like a manual on how to turn your entire life upside down with warning after warning after warning that it will cost you everything. In the story today, Jesus seems to simultaneously amaze and alienate every group represented in the court at the time. Violent revolution? Nope. That's how Judas the Galilean tried to do it, but it's not how this revolutionary is going to do it. Oh, so loyalty and subservience to the system and to the emperor. Nope, they can have their money. But God gets us, all of us. Caesar's image is on the coin, but not on us. Jesus says America's image is on the dollar, but not on us. And for us in Columbiana, Ohio, 2020, the question isn't necessarily who gets your taxes, right? The question is who gets you, who gets me. And remember, for us, there's no sacred secular divide. Who gets all of me? All life is holistic. This is biblical. In theology, it's called the doctrine of biblical holism. The scripture teaches us that God created humans, holistic beings. And it's all spiritual. This, it's this giant, integrated, holistic heaven and earth enmeshment. And God is over all of it. So when it comes to our worldview, the filter by which we see everything, our authority is our King Jesus. It's not a political party line. If anyone else gets obedience and submission, it's only because Jesus, our true King, says so. Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's, which is all of us. 
not just my time or money or my right behaviors, but me. The me that is me that God has made. But understand, to follow Jesus means to accept where the journey leads. Following Jesus leads to a life of self-denial, self-sacrifice, that rejects our cultural understandings of glory and comfort in favor of being like Jesus. And no, it isn't glamorous. It isn't glamorous to join with Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, this this Christ-shaped posture flies in the face of virtually everything we're taught as Westerners about individualism and empowerment and our own rights. Most of us have this built-in idea that tells us we're, we're deserving of certain, a certain standard of living. We're entitled to certain rights. We're entitled to keep what we earn. We're entitled to be kind to those who are kind to us. We're entitled to use violence against those who are violent. We're entitled to use our, into our own plans and our own hopes and our own dreams. We're a culture of selfies. Like 100 million selfies a day are uploaded. I just heard that stat. Like that's insane. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad. I'm just saying it's, it says something. It says something about who we are. The way of Jesus is antithetical to so much of what our culture values. But the moment we pledge allegiance to Jesus and swear our loyalties to him, the Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit becomes our arbiter. He becomes our help and our comfort and our empowerment. So I think as we wrap up, I think we have two questions we need to ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit. What allegiances do we need to reevaluate in the light of our allegiance to Jesus? What allegiances do we need to really reevaluate in the light of our allegiance to Jesus? Is it allegiance to a person? Girlfriend, boyfriend, boss, coworker, to a human institution? or a political party, or a business, or a social network? What competes for your complete and undivided allegiance to Jesus? And the second question, truthfully, am I giving to God what is God's? Is God calling me and you to a more complete worship? Not just like weekend gatherings, or singing the songs, or just going through the motions, but like you, All of you that is you, the holistic you, and all that that entails. See, our story, Mark 12, 13 through 17, it leads us somewhere. It actually leads us to verse 28 through 31, where Jesus is asked the question. So we're going to put the scripture on the screen, and I'll read the first part, and then we're all going to read Jesus' answer together, okay? This is the same day as our story, later that same day. So one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Can we all read this together out in one loud voice here? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. Keep going. The second is this. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. See, all the lesser gods and all the would-be masters, they fade away. And all the other allegiances and, and, and authorities and all our other dependencies, they fail to offer any real hope or life or freedom. So here the true king, Jesus, stands not with coercive power over, but with sacrificial power under. He's, he's the one we're following. He's the one we're modeling. He's the one that we're disciples of. And he demonstrated his love for the world, not with terrifying power, not with destruction of puny humans, look how awesome I am, but by washing your feet with a bowl and a rag. And he, he ended up dying for his enemies, using his last breath to pray for their forgiveness. That's who we follow. That's our authority. That's who we pledge our allegiance to. Amen. Bruce. Amen. Good stuff. You know, as we started the service, uh, the last verse of what Kate read was, in your light, we see light. It's like we don't even know what the true light is until we're in the light of God. And so my prayer is that even as we've heard the word today, that it would illuminate something new and afresh in us. You know, Jesus is after all of us, you know, not just a piece. And so let's, let's just take a moment here and give them a moment here and just to reflect on what the Lord's speaking to us. I don't want this moment to go by without us just making a fresh commitment to Jesus. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, this could be the first day of a whole new life. So I just encourage you, if you haven't given your life to the Lord yet, to just surrender to him. You know, all of his commandments, all of that he asks of us, it's so that we might live life to the full. And that's what he came to do, that we might have life in its fullness. And so responding to Jesus is always the wise thing to do. It's always the, the most life-giving thing. And uh, I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up forward too. Uh, so they'll be ready as we pray here. So let's just bow our heads. Jesus, we just ask that you would search our hearts, Lord. Lord, even expose, Lord, sometimes we don't even know our own motives. Or, uh, Lord, we're sometimes clueless, Lord. We ask that you would shine your light into our hearts. Lord, and give us your perspective, Lord. Father, we want our hearts to be all yours, Lord. And so we just turn those areas over that you are showing us, Lord, or if we've never given our life to you, Lord, we just surrender to you, Lord. And we give you our yes, Lord, and say you can have it all, Lord, every part of our lives, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that your ways lead to life, Lord. We thank you that you reign as king over the universe, Lord, no matter who is in charge in the government, Lord, that you are our king, and we just appreciate your leadership, Lord. We love who you are, and we delight in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, if you would like prayer this morning for any sort of thing, uh, whether it's in response to the message or just uh, particular.